What do you remember? The answer to this question has as much to do with one's present and one's future as it does with one's past. Memories inspire and warn. They comfort and haunt. They orient, reorient, influence. A good parent is a deliberate memory maker weaving a tapestry of moments that will profoundly influence who their child becomes, what they know to be true. This is a story about a father intentionally crafting the memories of his children, making moments in the present worthy of bringing to mind for ages to come, enabling a generation to say, I remember being scared, but not alone. I remember my father's hands being so strong and so tender. I remember, and I never want to forget. I'm Justin Gerhardt. Welcome to Holy Ghost Stories. No one knew what to do with the frogs. At first, it was a spectacle, the waters teeming with living creatures, amphibians emerging from the Nile in droves as if Heket herself, frog-headed goddess of water and renewal, had come to visit the land in superabundant presence. People pointed to the pulsating mass, ooing and awing, a glistening wave billowing across the land like a great length of linen shaken out by giant unseen hands. It was awesome, beautiful, wondrous. But it didn't stop. Soon, the frogs covered fields and pathways, roads and courtyards. They were two, three, ten deep. In houses, kitchens, crowded bedrooms, bursting, the palace even, painted in viridescent shades, its shining floors lined in a day's time with the crushed corpses of frogs trodden underfoot, the walls slippery with mucus. And the noise, a billion throats swollen with sound, percussive, squelching, sanity-stealing screams. And then there were the flies, billions of them. The people's flesh crawled, quite literally. Hesitant even to open their eyes, men and women and children fought through a constant cloud of wings, the sun glinting off innumerable metallic thoraxes and bulbous compound eyes. Gnats after that. Great swarms of tiny flying insects thronging the air, and within days, great piles of dead gnats lining the streets, blown by the wind into drifts 
like decomposing snow. Other things followed. Strange things. Horrible things. Horses, donkeys, sheep, camels, and goats struck with sickness, dead in hours. Boils blistering the skin of man and beast. Hail falling from the sky like stones, pummeling crops and stripping trees. Mobs of locusts descending on and devouring anything that had survived the hail. But in all this chaos, there is, at least, the sun. Amun-Ra, the great god, the great king above all gods. Even now, he rises amidst the disorder, shining light on his people. Do the Egyptians cling even more tightly now to the words of the old song, the hymn of Pharaoh Akhenaten? When you rise upon the horizon, the day breaks, you dispel darkness, and when you give forth your rays, the lands are in festival. People are alert, standing on their feet, now that you have raised them up. Whenever you set on the western horizon, the land is in darkness like death, and one eye does not see another. Every lion comes out of his cave, and all serpents bite, for the darkness is a blanket. The land now is silent because he who made them is at rest on his horizon. Prayers of worship rise from blistered hands through the stinking air, past naked tree limbs, to the one God who has not left them. Yahweh sighs. Darkness, then. Let there be no light. Photons disappear from the air, evacuating immediately as if they had been waiting for the word of their master, ready to obey. Electromagnetic radiation hurtling from the sun at 186,000 miles per second stops, barricaded somehow from the land and the eyes of Ra's worshippers. Mothers and fathers, grandparents and older siblings all find themselves without words when the children of Egypt ask, But where is Amun-Ra, the sun? Why has he not made his journey across the sky? Is he hurt? The all-consuming black swallows the nation, chews it into a terrified mass, and then suddenly spits it out three days later. Bizarre, terrifying times, these. Especially since every one of these blows has been struck by a foreigner. Moses, agent of the Hebrews' once sleeping deity. How he wields this much power. Why Pharaoh, consul of the gods, has not been able to hold back this chaos. It has everyone in Egypt talking, trembling. 
They say Pharaoh has brought this on himself upon the people by refusing to let the Hebrews go out to the wilderness. They say Pharaoh is crazed. They say he's lost his mind over this, that he will never relent. But meanwhile, Egypt is crumbling, squeezed by the mighty hand of Yahweh. Pharaoh must stop this. But it seems nothing will change his heart. What will it take? I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and Egypt. After that, he will let you go. Yahweh watches Moses take in the words. He's tired, this old shepherd. All of the back and forth with Pharaoh, the king's tantrums, watching his once neighbors suffering under these horrors. Yahweh's seen the cocktail of anger and sadness and weariness brewing in Moses through all of this. The better part of a year now. Anticipation, too. Moses wants it to end, wants to go, finally. Soon. Tell the people that men and women alike are to ask the Egyptians for articles of silver and gold. Moses' eyebrows rise. Yahweh smiles. Yes, it's bold, but yes, they will give it freely. Has Yahweh enjoyed spending all this time with Moses? The subject matter of their conversations has been heavy, certainly. But still, how long has it been since Yahweh got to talk with one of his children like this? So consistently, so intimately. He's noticed, of course, Moses' posture toward him changing over the past several months. Less stranger, more friend. A precious pocket of joy in the midst of all this pain. And now it's finally time. After months of introducing himself to Moses, the Hebrews, to Pharaoh and the Egyptians, to the world, it's time to show them the fullness of who he is. It's time to set his people free. Is what Yahweh says. Moses stands before Pharaoh, anger boiling inside him as he locks eyes with the king of Egypt one last time. It's difficult, more emotionally taxing, to deliver the message himself, but Pharaoh was explicit. Only you. The days of darkness seem to have hit harder than the other plagues. And so without Aaron, Moses came to the palace watched the fear buried beneath outrage in Pharaoh's face again, 
listened to another of the king's attempted rebuttals. You can go for a while, but with none of your flocks or herds. And then, as Moses refused to negotiate, he noticed Pharaoh's eyes narrow and change, as if the king's heart were stiffening in that very moment. Get out of my sight, Pharaoh said, his words echoing off the unbending stone walls of the palace. And don't let me see you again. If you do, I'll kill you. It's to those words still hanging in the air that Moses now responds. This man's arrogance is voice trembling with fury. Moses speaks a final message before he leaves. This is what Yahweh says. About midnight, I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son or daughter in Egypt will die. From the firstborn son of Pharaoh to the firstborn of the female slave. All of the firstborn of the cattle as well. Panic moves across Pharaoh's face, despite his best efforts to contain it. His knuckles whiten around his crook and flail. There will be loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there has ever been or ever will be again. But among the Israelites, no harm will befall any person or animal. Moses grips his staff, refusing to break eye contact. All these officials of yours, he waves his hand at the counselors and dignitaries standing by, Pharaoh's cherished, flattering minions. All of them will come to me, bowing before me and saying, go, you and all of the people who follow you. After that, I will leave. Then Moses turns and walks out of the palace without looking back. Does Pharaoh glance at his son? Does he consider changing course? It seems the answer, somehow, is no. Perhaps his son, sharing Pharaoh's contempt for the Hebrews and their usurping God, affirms his father's stiff-necked posture. Perhaps the courtiers, ever Pharaoh's spaniels, mock Moses as he leaves. Yahweh sighs. There will be no mocking in Egypt tonight. Hyssop sprigs plunge into a basin of opaque liquid, viscous, crimson. The minty smell of the leaves mingles with the copper scent of sheep's blood as tiny purple flowers are robed in red. Trembling hands pull the dripping hyssop skyward and stripe the doorposts, washing them in the blood of the lamb. Did the Hebrews balk at the command to paint their homes with the lifeblood of murdered rams in the land of Knum, the ram-headed god who created humankind from clay like a potter? Perhaps, but this, it seems, is a moment for choosing the pantheon of Egypt or the lone god who calls himself Yahweh. 
All over Goshen, brown timber is stained scarlet. It is the only thing, they've been told, that will keep their children alive on this night of death. It is all they have to do. Inside the homes, Hebrews gather for a meal. A strange meal, honestly, but it was commanded by Yahweh. And where it is, it's to be their last meal in Egypt. How is it that the prospect of freedom provokes so much fear? They sit down to tables set simply, roasted lamb or goat, bitter herbs and unleavened bread. No pot needed to boil meat, no time needed for dough to rise. The whole thing feels hasty, in fact, portable even. At Yahweh's command, they eat with their cloaks tucked into their belts, with their sandals on their feet and their staffs in their hands, wolfing the food down as if they were about to head out the door. But they mustn't head out the door. Not yet. No one is to leave the house, the elders said, who were told by Aaron, who was told by Moses, who was told by Yahweh. If the children ask why, their parents don't mince words. The destroyer is coming. This is Yahweh's Passover, they tell their sons and daughters. Passover? Yes. The deity says, I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am Yahweh. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. Do the Hebrews notice the analogs authored here by Yahweh? Their houses made into arcs, protecting them while destruction rains down on those outside. Does Moses think of his basket all those years ago? Do these slain lambs and goats bring to mind the ram provided instead of Isaac? There will eventually, of course, be another parallel, an indelible line drawn in time alongside this one in a place called Golgotha. Murmured conversation surely marks the meal in every house, and worship, Joseph-era songs almost forgotten, or perhaps Egyptian tunes co-opted, lyrics about Isis or Anuk restyled with verses exalting Yahweh. And in the corners of each house, bearing witness to this inaugural Israelite feast, piles of Egyptian gold and silver and clothing. It seems they asked, boldly. Eleven p.m. A full moon hangs luminous on the black wall of sky, casting an eerie light on the streets of Tanis, Avaris, Memphis, and Heliopolis in the Delta. Heracleopolis, Abydos, Thebes, and Aswan, too, are bathed in silvery rays. Even Elephantine, Abu Simbel, and Napata at the Nile's furthest heights, those cities find themselves caught, along with the rest, in the one-eyed gaze of the moon. Word of the next plague likely hasn't had time to reach beyond the royal city, but within its walls, parents sleep fitfully. Or not at all. 
They rise again and again to check on their children. Not yet, thank the gods. Not yet. Not yet. And then, midnight. Yahweh, or Yahweh's agent, moves through the nation of Egypt, entering houses and extinguishing life. Children and adults, horses and cows, male and female, every firstborn creature suddenly slumps in their sleep. Hearts stop beating, chests stop rising, eyelids stop fluttering. It's as if Yahweh has been actively sustaining every life and then simply lets go. Finally, the moment of discovery comes. One mother finds, to her horror, that it's true that what Moses said to Pharaoh has actually come to pass. She clutches her baby and collapses as a shattered wail rises from her lungs. In moments, she's joined by the plaintive cry of a father and mother next door. And then, others. Again and again, the sorrow multiplies, anguish tearing through Egypt at breakneck speed. Dogs bark in the streets, lamps are lit, people stumble out of their doors and into the night, tripping over dead livestock in their haste to bang on their neighbor's door. Has it happened to them as well? I will bless those who bless you, Yahweh said to Abraham all those years ago. And whoever curses you, I will curse. Moses listens as screams stain the air. This must be what it sounded like when the Israelites' babies were stolen and drowned in the Nile. He remembers the first words Yahweh gave him to deliver to Pharaoh. Israel is my firstborn son, but you refused to let him go, so I will kill your firstborn son. Bang, bang, bang. Moses whips his head toward the door. He opens it. Soldiers. Pharaoh demands to see you. It's like riding on horseback through a nightmare. Moses looks left and then right, surveying the horror. Windows frame lamplit tableaus, parents bent over limp children, trying in vain to shake them awake. Grandparents shuffle through the streets, grief-dazed, calling out for a doctor, for a sorcerer, for a miracle. They do not understand. They are inside of one. Some notice Moses, surely, recognize him as he moves past, lit by the pale moon. If they do, they recoil at the proximity of this angel of death. Please, do not take anyone else. The palace is no different. Praeternatural shrieks greet Moses and Aaron as they arrive, as if the royal family has been displaced by banshees. Inside, chaos. The heir apparent, the firstborn son of Pharaoh himself, has not been spared by the destroyer. Moses swallows, nods to Aaron. They enter the throne room. 
Pharaoh's eyes are bloodshot. His cheeks shine with tears and flush with shame and grief and rage. Leave my people, you and the Israelites, go worship Yahweh as you have requested. This being the middle of the night and the circumstances being what they are, Pharaoh is likely without his headdress, as if the menacing cobra's hood has been amputated. His balding head exposed, his eyes unlined. He looks old. Take your flocks and your herds, as you have said. Aaron glances at Moses. That's it. The final requirement. That's the permission they've been waiting for for months. And then Pharaoh, ambassador of the gods, wielder of unrivaled power among men, manages one more sentence as Moses turns to leave. And also, bless me. What would it have been like if Pharaoh had done things differently? If he'd set aside his penchant to prove his power? If he'd been willing that day in the throne room, that staff-turned-sea monster writhing before him, to marvel at the one who created it? What would it have been like for Pharaoh if he'd said yes to Yahweh, bowed before the king? Does he think about that tonight? Does he ask himself this question as the sun rises on a nation full of broken mothers and fathers grieving for their children? Does he lie in the bed of his dead son, curled into a ball, eyes closed, inhaling, cherishing the boy's scent? Does he pray to Ra or Isis, Horus or Osiris, Heket or Anuk? Does he shed tears as he wonders why they didn't come to help when he needed them most? Does he consider, even for the briefest moment, daring to pray to Yahweh? When Yahweh tells this story, he will make a point of saying that he hardened Pharaoh's heart, but only after Pharaoh hardened it himself as if Yahweh simply gave the king of Egypt, recalcitrant oppressor of the powerless, more of what he'd already heartbreakingly chosen for himself. And Moses? Where is his heart in all this? As he journeys back through the nightmare and then into the oasis of life that is Goshen, what does he feel? Exhaustion, surely. It's been a long several months, a long 430 years, so much pain. But now, as he walks through the streets of the Israelite settlement, as mothers and fathers stand in their charmed doorways watching him pass, nodding to him as they hold their living, breathing children in arms crisscrossed with scars, their knees dusty from kneeling this night in worship. What does he feel? What is that rising within Moses? Hope. Hope pricking its way through the soil of a kept promise. 
hope close as the tracks of his staff. Hope like light binding the darkness. Who is this Yahweh? There will come a day, not long from now, when Moses will stand tall in the shade of the newly erected wall beside him. The best leather, covering ramskins dyed red, covering woven goat hair, covering finely spun linen embroidered with cherubim made from blue, purple, and scarlet yarn. A layered construction, conceived by a layered god. A god Moses is starting to feel like he knows. The way the Jews will tell the story, it's on this day, the first day Moses stands in the shadow of the tabernacle, reflecting on where he's been and all he's seen, all that happened during those cataclysmic days in Egypt and the very different days the Hebrews spent in Goshen, that Moses will write a song. Whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of Yahweh, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. And then, as if He wants to say it to everyone on earth, Surely He will save you from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with His feathers, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. Flashes of the view from Goshen play in his mind as Moses remembers a wall of darkness at the edge of their slave settlement, shrouding the great empire around them in black. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the plague that destroys at midday. That night, the night so many heartbeats stopped. A thousand may fall at your side, 10,000 at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only observe with your eyes and see the punishment of the wicked. The old man wipes a tear from his eye, perhaps his heart aching for others to know. If you say Yahweh is my refuge and you make the Most High your dwelling, no harm will overtake you. No disaster will come near your tent, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. A smile you will trample the great lion and the serpent. And then, does Yahweh speak? It would seem from the finished song as though he does, joining his friend Moses in a moment of creation. Moses writes, Because he loves me, says Yahweh, I will rescue him. I will protect him, for he acknowledges my name. It's a good song. 
Hey, Justin here. Thanks so much for listening to part four of the Exodus. It comes to blows. If you're wondering whether I made up that song of Moses's or where that hymn of Pharaoh Akhenaten came from or why plague isn't the best translation of the 10 acts of judgment Yahweh brings on Egypt, you should jump over to holyghoststories.org and sign up for the latest. It's an email I send out every couple of weeks with all kinds of interesting behind the scenes stuff on my storytelling decisions in addition to other things I'm working on or thinking about and always cool stuff I've come across online that you have to see or hear or read or buy. It's free and you can sign up at holyghoststories.org or by following the link in the show notes. If you're listening to this episode close to its February 2023 release, I've got an invitation for you. I'm doing a Holy Ghost Stories live show alongside some incredible musicians and vocalists at York University outside of Omaha, Nebraska on March 13th. York is generously sponsoring this event and tickets are just $5, but space is limited. The last Holy Ghost Stories live show sold out and we've got less room at this one, so register while you can at Holy Ghost Stories live. Now, if you're new to Holy Ghost Stories and you're curious at all, you're perhaps wondering, how does this podcast get made? The answer is you, or people just like you. We are crowdfunding season four with an incredible community of donors who want kingdom art like this in the world. And this episode in particular was brought to you by the generous contributions of Aaron and Doug Brown, Anna Gilbert, Bailey Sexton, and the incredible Tours, who give at the highest level on Patreon every month. Daniel O, Daniel H, Deborah, Riley and Autumn, Valerie, Travis, Steve, Shannon, Kara, Dawn, Catherine, Jean-Paul, Brenda, Tiffany, Sarah Beth, Stephanie, Vicenta, Cheyenne, Helen, Debbie, Scott and Susan, Derek, Maddie, Eric, John, Ricky, Mark, Kimmy, Stephen, Patrick, Liz, Stevens, Terry, Nelwyn, Julie, Aaron, Jamie, Stephen, Bill and Trina, Jessica, Ken and Patty, Alyssa Sloan, and Jamie. I could write a psalm thanking Yahweh for you guys. Holy Ghost Stories is a production of Hazefire Studios. Our composer is Kendall Ramsour. Our sound engineer is Joel Dolly. Manuscript editing by J.L. Gerhardt. Research, writing, narration, and direction by me, Justin Gerhardt. Till next time. Thank you.